You don't need me to tell you that the world today is a very different place to what it was a year ago. But what would it be like a year from now? We put that question in one way or another to 144 of our global research team and their answers form the Fidelity Annual Analyst Survey, which we publish today. It's a unique bottom-up view of the world that's centred apart from economic data and surveys and reveals exactly what trends the analysts are seeing in the companies and sectors they cover every day. From the health of balance sheets to the attitudes of managers, the survey compiles a detailed on-the-ground picture of the corporate world and what businesses are planning for the year ahead. Stay tuned to hear the survey's key findings and hear our experts interpret what it means for investors. I'm Richard Edgar, and this is Fidelity International's Rich Pickings, the Asset Allocation Podcast. Well, joining me are the Global Head of Investment Research, Ned Salter, and Global Economist, Anna Stupnitska. Welcome to you both. Hi, Hello. Richard. Right. The analyst survey has become something of an institution. We've been running it for 11 years but never with the context of the year we've just been through, of course. Now, the survey asked the research team 50 questions. Ned, it's your team that's fielding them. What do you think is the most important question generally that's facing companies at the moment? Well, I'm going to have to cheat, Richard, and I think there's actually two, and I know you're going to punish me for this. But the first is obviously sustainability, and I'm sure we'll come to that as we go through the survey, and I'm sure Anna has things to say on that topic as well. Uh, But in addition to that, I think managers right now are in a pretty difficult position as it relates to capital allocation. We put ourselves in the position of of managers and, and business leaders right now. You know, we're looking at the vaccine rollout now globally. Everyone's wondering how swiftly we can go. Can we accelerate? Well, at the same time, we see this evolution of virus variants, and we don't know exactly what the interplay between those two items are. When you layer on top of that the fact that we don't really know what the new normal is, what does ultimately aggregate demand look like, and in what shape does it take at industry or the sectoral level, I think it's a pretty difficult position to know when to invest or how much to invest. So that, that if I were a senior manager, and when I speak to the analysts, that's certainly something that is on the management team's minds. That sounds remarkably like uncertainty, which is a dreadful cliche to say companies and investors don't like. But we'll, I'm sure, clear up some of that uncertainty um, over the next uh, few minutes as we, as we discuss the survey. But um, Anna, let me put the same question to you. What do you think is the most significant question facing, facing companies at the moment? Well, I have to pick up on uh, sustainability that Ned mentioned already. Um, I do think that um, this is uh, the the medium to longer term question, how to achieve net zero over the next uh, couple of decades. And also a wider question within that context is, is how to adapt businesses, how to change within the framework of uh, UN's uh, Sustainable Development Goals. As we know, there are 17 of them, but I think in particular for two or three of them that include climate action, responsible consumption and production and inclusion. Okay, you've both mentioned sustainability and we will be coming uh, to it in a moment. But before we do, Ned, as head of research, what does this survey and to the body of work that already happens at Fidelity. is a really great opportunity to take stock and really come at our analysis kind of from a top-down perspective. Again, not top-down from the perspective of macro, the way Anna's team would, but really thinking about the trends that we're seeing across 
thousands of companies and many end markets and industries. Well, timing is always critical. We should explain that the survey went out to the analysts in December, just before the new mutations of the COVID-19 virus emerged and governments imposed new lockdowns. Now, that could have made the results invalid. So we re-asked some of the most important questions early in the new year. And the new data emphasised some short-term concerns, but confirmed a general confidence for the year ahead. And that's the main message. Now, Anna, the title of the survey is Counting Down the Days, referring, of course, to the time when economies finally reopen. Big picture, what sort of a recovery story are you expecting? Well, I think the um, survey sentiment is consistent with the macro indicators that we are seeing due to the lockdowns through the winter. Um, we have seen uh, a slowdown in activity momentum globally, uh, particularly in Europe and the UK, because as we know, the, the lockdowns uh, have been much uh, stricter here than elsewhere, particularly in the US. Um, interestingly, though, the slowdown has been uh, more uh, modest than expected. And looking ahead over the next few months, the uh, virus numbers uh, now started dropping and uh, now we are looking forward to mobility restrictions being gradually lifted. We have started seeing some of that already happening in the in certain countries, uh, but globally we expect that uh, to happen more fully from the second half of the year. And so as the economies reopen and uh, as um, the vaccination programs uh, cover more and more, and more of, uh, of the population across countries, we are hoping to see quite a strong rebound in growth, actually, in the second half of this year. Now, I don't think it's going to be perfectly synchronized uh, because the reopening strategies are different and vaccination programs are progressing at a very different pace, uh, faster in uh, developed markets, uh, perhaps on average, than in emerging markets. But overall, I think global momentum will add up and it's going to be very strong from the second half of this year, also supported by continuous uh, uh, policy accommodation. Very helpful to have that economic context there, Anna. Thank you. Now, our colleague George Watson is the editor of the survey, and I spoke to him earlier about the results and to hear what some of the analysts themselves had to say about them. George, welcome. You've spent the past month coming through the analyst survey, thousands of data points. And to sum it all up, the headline message is pretty optimistic, isn't it? That's right. The headline question is about management sentiment. And what we found this year is a global average of over 60% of our analysts say that their company managements are more confident about this year than they were last. Now, obviously, comparisons with last year are fairly tricky, given the year obviously didn't quite work out how our analysts expected it might do at the time. But just for a bit of context, just before the pandemic really uh, took hold, only 20% of um, our analysts said that their management teams were more confident um, at the time. So it's a really quite startling turnaround this year. Okay, well, um, in a little bit more detail, which sectors uh, seem to be the most positive? Broadly, it's the cyclical sectors. So we've got things like financials, energy, industrials, um, as well as information technology, which is obviously uh, one of the sectors that's had a very strong year. And the others I mentioned there um, haven't had a, a great year, I would say. And so they're coming from quite a low base. Well, let's hear from an analyst who covers one of those sectors. This is Tom Robinson. Uh, he's also a portfolio manager and he focuses on European energy. 2020 was probably the worst year on record for the energy sector. It underperformed the, the wider European market by around 30%. 
Oil demand fell 9% year over year, which is about three times as bad as it was during the financial crisis. And the earnings fell on average 75%. 2021 is a recovery year for the energy sector. Activity will increase, spending will increase moderately, and commodity prices have improved considerably year over year. What we're really looking for is margin expansion because the revenue line increases with uh, commodity prices improving, but the cost line is quite inelastic initially during the initial expansion phase. That's Tom Robinson on European energy. Um, what about sustainable business? Um, qu- quite different to, um, to energy. Um, we've asked questions related to ESG, environmental, social and governance issues. And what do the analysts have to say there? Well, this year, again, it's, it's another sharp increase. And we say this every year and quite surprising each year. And this year is no different. There's another sharp increase in companies taking ESG actions more seriously, communicating more, um, putting into action those kind of plans. And, and just to put some context on it for you, in 2017, 60% of our analysts said that they were seeing no improvement in ESG communications or actions by their company. And this year, that figure is just 5%. So we've just, in those five years of asking this survey, we've seen a huge turnaround there. And and obviously, as survey editor, I'm thinking that this question, soon enough, we're going to have 100% of our analysts uh, saying that they're seeing a huge increase in ESG, and I'm going to have to come up with a new question. Yes, you will need um, new questions. But you, you asked a new question this year as well. And can you just tell me a little bit more about what you found there? So this year, for the first time, we asked our analysts how many of the companies in their coverage would be carbon neutral by 2030, 2040, and 2050. And what we found was um, around a quarter of companies will be carbon neutral by 2030, and that rises to two thirds of companies by 2050. Now, I'm pretty excited about this data point because I feel like it's quite unique. These sorts of averages normally are done quite top down, and you perhaps take a few industries and extrapolate out. And what we have here is 150 subject matter experts who are, these are still estimates, obviously we're asking them decades in advance, but they have such a good handle on what companies are saying and crucially what they're doing. Um, And so I think it's a really interesting data point. And pretty ambitious as well, even though, uh, you know, a quarter leaves off three quarters, but a quarter carbon neutral within the next nine nine years. That's impressive um, in itself. Well, let's have a look at one sector that really is at the sharp end of all this. Um, Christine Miyagishima is an analyst who covers the utilities sector in a region that's about to see a big change to power generation, and that's the United States. President Biden has laid out an ambitious plan to make the country's electricity grid carbon neutral by 2035, a decade and a half from now. But Christine says that there are a number of forces at work. It's not just just the federal government that's influencing change. There are three drivers of this potential change towards additional renewable capacity, renewable generation in the U.S. The first driver is the states themselves, and they themselves have enacted a zero uh, carbon emissions policy in their power grid. Beyond just the states, however, the second prong is the utility companies. A number of my utility companies have promised to their customers and to their shareholders that they intend to no longer generate power from carbon emitting sources. And then the last source is companies, the commercial customers of electricity, Google, McDonald's, Microsoft, Apple, GM, all preempting a nationwide energy policy and all deciding mainly based on their customers asking them to that they are no longer gonna be buying electricity whose source is carbon. So George, companies are 
being pressured from all sorts of um, angles, aren't they? How do you think the answer to this question about carbon neutrality, how do you think that might develop as we ask the question again next year and in the, the years to come? It's going to be very interesting whether that's 25% by 2030, whether that stays the same next year or, or changes. I have a sneaky feeling that we might do better than that by 2030. And you can dust off this podcast and and check in 10 years time to see if I was see if I was correct. I hope you are. Okay, well, let's take um, the, the big view again. And we've been through a crazy year that's disrupted business everywhere. Um, are we in recovery yet? I guess that's the, uh, the big question. Are we still in the downturn? At what stage of the economic cycle do the analysts judge their companies to be in? About a third of our analysts say that their sector is in the initial expansion stage of the cycle with another quarter of analysts saying that they're in the mid stage. So it's it's pretty clear, and especially compared to previous years, that we have had some sort of a reset. Now, as I say, those are the global averages. There's one region that really sticks out in the data, which is China. Everywhere else, there are more analysts saying that their sectors are in the initial expansion phase than the mid-cycle expansion. And China, that's the reverse. And so we see around 35% of analysts saying that they're companies are already in the mid-cycle expansion stage and have left that initial recovery stage behind. Well, of course, China was first into the crisis um, and first out. That's something that we've been analysing over the past year. Um, but why is the question? Well, here's China consumer analyst and portfolio manager Ben Li, who's based in Hong Kong, uh, to tell us a little bit more. First of all, Chinese government has contained COVID-19 very early on. So production activities largely resume normal from Q2 onwards. And then um, since Q2, there had been a few more smaller waves, um, but the government has accumulated a lot of experience in dealing with the situation. For example, uh, tracing, mass testing, uh, community control, lockdowns, etc. Because China is first in and first out, uh, the country is able to take a bigger role in global supply chain. Um, actually, many other production hubs are seeing uh, lockdowns at the moment, um, or they're seeing their upstream suppliers getting disrupted. Uh, but China is different. Uh, China has an extensive industrial presence within the country and does not overly rely on overseas suppliers. So Ben explaining there how China is probably well placed to continue um, that expansion, particularly while the rest of the world is still um, is still suffering. Well, Ben mentioned that there have been a few pockets of new cases of COVID-19 in China. And in fact, the government there was discouraging travel over the Lunar New Year, a time when usually millions of people are on the move. Now, as a result, Ben tells us that he expects traffic to have decreased by about 60 to 70% of what you'd normally see around the holiday period. That's still much better than last year when absolutely everything was in lockdown. Um, after this setback, um, the outlook for China for the rest of the year, it looks pretty good, doesn't it, George? Yeah, that's right. I think the majority of our China analysts are very positive about the year ahead. You can see that in the recent GDP numbers that have come out for China as well. Certainly, I think fiscal stimulus, according to some of our China analysts, will, will moderate this year. I think there was quite a lot last year. And certainly compared to the rest of the world, which are probably still full guns on that, then China will, will certainly come off a bit. And, and some of our analysts are saying that growth should should start to slow down towards the end of this year. So slowing down, but still well ahead of the rest of the world. Um, an impressive performance indeed from China. George, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.
George Watson, the editor of Fidelity's Analyst Survey, who's been leading the team through this project since October. Now, Anna, let's pick up where Ben Lee left us with China and the different rates at which the world's regions are getting back on track. Is it so unbalanced, that picture, that it's a worry? I don't think this is a particular worry unless uh, that divergence between the policy stances, uh, China versus uh, other countries and global, um, really widens. For example, uh, if um, there is an inflation spike in China and uh, they decide to tighten policy quite aggressively, um, that will have uh, an impact on on the domestic recovery story, uh, but also very likely it will lead to a spillover into the rest of the world in terms of tighter financial conditions. We don't worry about it right now, uh, but this is certainly something to watch given that policy differential already in place. And Ned, um, from an investment perspective, how should we be thinking about these trends? Specifically, I suppose, what the survey is telling us about China. Yeah, there's a, there's a huge amount of attention on COVID, on vaccine rollout, on restarts. And I think the survey data, as it relates to, to China, also does sort of confirm this first in, first out element, um, economically speaking, which is why I think a lot of the analysts have indicated the Chinese economic activity is further along than we would see in other markets around the world. But I also want to, you know, I don't want to forget about some of the underlying structural themes that are at play here uh, that were, were already underway prior to COVID. And I think one of those would obviously for China be a reorientation of the economy from an export-led economy to one that fosters and transitions towards domestic consumption. And so, for example, you know, through, through COVID, we've seen much greater uh, pickup of some consumption activity. And I was speaking to the analysts as well, talking about the consumption of luxury goods. And I think, you know, the, the Chinese have encouraged some of the luxury players to really focus on the normalization of pricing of those luxury goods onshore versus offshore. And so you're seeing people consume a lot of luxury goods onshore, and that may persist well after unlock. You may not need to buy your handbags in Paris and your uh, silk neckties in Milan anymore. You, you may be, be predisposed to do that in, in your home market. So what, what, what might have been a political ambition before has been accelerated by um, the, the, the pandemic. Um, so they are now buying more locally. I think that's right. Okay. Anna, would you say that this is a setback and recovery when we think about the, um, the economic cycle, or is it a full reset of the economic clock? I think it depends on um, uh, the virus situation going forward. Um, this is one of the key risks, perhaps, to the short-term trajectory. Um, if we see the development of uh, further um, virus variants uh, that are more contagious or more deadly uh, or um, more resistant uh, to the existing vaccines, um, this could be potentially uh, the main obstacle for, for that recovery, for that strong growth that I was talking about uh, on the back of reopening in the second half of the year uh, to come through. Um, so we can uh, have another lockdown potentially and another setback. It's not our base case right now, but I think this would be um, the main factor from the perspective of, of the virus. Um, of course, there are other risks out there, policy credibility is probably uh, one of the main ones that we, we are focusing on because the economy, the global economy is so dependent on policy support right now. I'm talking both fiscal and monetary. 
any potential misstep, any potential miscommunication or early tightening, over-tightening or not enough easing uh, can uh, lead to a setback in recovery. And in this respect, we are watching, of course, the key central banks very carefully and particularly the Fed. And um, Ned, you were talking right at the beginning about the the uncertainty for, for company bosses. What are the uh, the analysts saying um, about this quite fragile situation that um, Anna's describing? Yeah, I think what we're focused on as a research team is thinking about what we've been calling the K-shaped recovery. So I guess less worried about the big thematic trends, but ultimately determining who in the new normal are winners and who in the new normal have had their total addressable market ripped away from them because of accelerated changes in customer behavior or, or behaviors of corporates. So I think when the analysts worry, they're, they're very much worried about the, the macroeconomic pitch, picture, but of course, they're going to be worried about thinking about companies' positions within that macro picture as well. Well, going back to the section that we heard with the analysts themselves and listening to Tom Robinson's comments on energy, it's clear that some industries have had an exceptionally volatile year. Um, Ned, many of those are cyclical sectors anyway. And as George pointed out, energy, industrials, materials, um, but not all of them uh, are involved in this. What does it mean for portfolios? How are, how are the portfolio managers um, adjusting? Yeah, there's no question that there's optimism in companies uh, that have cyclical exposure. Uh, and, and I think it's important that we remember that a big part of that is the base effect, that we are comparing a, a very dire situation um, for, for some of those energy companies. I think energy demand fell more than three times uh, during COVID than what it fell during the global financial crisis, just to put it in perspective. So the rebound is going to be very significant. For portfolios, we're really considering it on a, on a case-by-case basis. And I think here is where we worry about uh, the difference between the move in the multiple and the move in the earnings. And I think what we saw in 2020 was a big re-rating of the market, whereas now we need to get back to basics and focus on where are we going to see that earnings growth come through. Certainly that will come through in some of the commodity-oriented sectors. And so we have seen portfolio managers uh, you know, towards the end of 2020 becoming more pro-cyclically oriented. So that sounds like a time for stock picking, if ever there were one. Um, is that trying to identify then the, the pandemic winners and losers, and I suppose the winners and the losers as we come out of the, uh, the, the crisis. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's, it's, it's back to basics. It's fundamentals. It's thinking about total addressable markets and market share. It's thinking about pricing power, because of course, revenue is going to come back, as Anna described, you know, with the macroeconomic recovery. But how does that flow through the P&L and impact profits and cash flow? And obviously, companies are, are, are geared up now. And so repaying some of that debt is going to be of critical importance important. So pricing power and cost structures matter, as well as thinking about innovation. I mean, we've seen a huge amount of innovation in crises. And so what are the disruptive behaviors and disruptive new entrants into markets? And, and ultimately, again, we'll come back to sustainability, but that's a huge piece. You know, that's really what the analyst team is focused on now, recommending securities that meet those positive attributes for portfolio managers. Monetary policy has um, had a hand in all of this, of course, in, in, in market levels, because central banks have flooded economies with, um, with cheap money. Um, and raising capital can't be much of a concern at the moment because of that. Um, is that the same story everywhere, though? I mean, you, you, I'm leading you into to China here because you've already talked about the fact that um, it is a, a slightly tighter situation there. 
judging from the survey responses, and again, this is consistent uh, uh, with the macro picture we're seeing, overall funding costs are expected to, to stay uh, low, exceptionally low, or even low in some markets, um, in all sectors and regions, except for China. And again, this le uh, leads to that story that I talked about, uh, where uh, stimulus in China has clearly peaked, and the focus is shifting towards uh, controlled deleveraging again. I do think it's interesting that um, looking at uh, banking surveys, particularly in Europe, what I noticed recently is that while the rates are very low, credit conditions have started tightening. That's quite interesting. I think banks uh, are tightening credit standards in anticipation of, of the phase-out of the government support that has been in place for, in place for a while. Uh, the timing is different across countries within the euro area, but uh, the b banks are concerned about it. Um, and so I think this is um, something that we need to watch. Again, the ECB is obviously keeping the rates low and uh, doing a lot um, for um, financial conditions, uh, but the, the credit standard, and uh, depending on what the banks anticipate, given the policy uncertainty, I think is something that... Um, we need to watch very carefully in Europe. Right, that's the, the, the monetary side, the monetary picture that you've, um, you've painted there, Anna. But what about um, fiscal? There's been an awful lot of fiscal support as well for economies um, through the, the, the crisis. Um, how will that play out this year? Fiscal policy overall remains supportive uh, globally, uh, not as much as last year. Uh, obviously, we needed a lot to, to plug those income holes and to help the businesses uh, during lockdowns. Um, but I would say that the U.S. is a notable standout in this context. Actually, if anything, we might see more fiscal support this year, uh, potentially, than last with, with the two packages. Another COVID relief package of $1.9 trillion and then the Build America Back package uh, focused on green infrastructure in particular of about 2 to $3 trillion to be dispersed over the next two to four years. All this fiscal uh, uh, coming together in the U.S. might result in real GDP growth of uh, above 7 or perhaps 8% this year. In other countries, it's a bit less so, but I would say it's important to note the pivot towards policies uh, that are directed um, to investment in infrastructure, you know, green transition, uh, digitalization, rather than just COVID relief. So Ned, um, those are the government um, forces that are that are driving the recovery and um, with, with a, a, a green twist, um, if you like, that, uh, that Anna was setting out, thinking about sustainable investing. We heard Christine um, talking earlier about the drivers in the US to bring the country closer to net neutral carbon emissions. But the survey tells us it's not just America where environmental, social and governance uh, issues are moving up the agenda. Um, tell us about um, the, uh, the picture elsewhere. I mean, ESG is the silver lining of COVID. 
I mean, we've we've talked about this for a little while now, and it's been a, obviously a very unfortunate series of events that's gotten us here. But but there's no question that sustainability is now global. We saw this coming out through the analyst survey a long time ago, actually, that this the acceleration of discussions in corporate boardrooms about a focus on sustainability was really beginning to increase. And even in China, we were seeing some of the biggest step function growth in 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 sort of year over year increases in the focus on sustainability. But to me, the big key question is, is the market going to continue to pay attention to issues of sustainability, or are we going to fall back into this muscle memory, this reflex that just says, look, there are some deeply cheap companies out there, um, and it's time to deploy capital into cheap companies with bad sustainability criteria to achieve uh, uh, excess financial return. And so I think we need to be really careful coming out of this. You've asked yourself a question. I wonder whether you could, whether you can answer it, um, because I think there are details in the survey that suggest that the focus that there was during the pandemic on the S, the social side, which further investigation um, in the monthly surveys that we conduct suggested this was about employee welfare, that that now seems to be falling back a little bit. Does that mean um, that it is um, purely back to the old ways or is the, you know, have company managements changed uh, permanently um, all the same? I think companies have changed permanently. And I think that the agenda of employee welfare thinking about your customers, how well you treat your customers, thinking about resilience of your organization has gone parabolic. I think ultimately we're at the point now where where that that is on the agenda. And, and to some extent, you would imagine that companies will begin to focus again on things like capital allocation or M&A. And so it may take a, a greater percentage of a fixed amount of brain capacity uh, for senior managers. Uh, but I think the question is a little bit more existential than that. It's not just for company managers. It's also for investors more broadly um, as to how they're going to think about what companies you want to invest in coming out of the crisis. You made an interesting point, Ned, where you said that um, company managements have got, uh, you know, a, a sort of a limited capacity to cope with anything at any one time. And I suppose for many of them, the past year has been, uh, there's been an aspect of surviving as they get through that. Um, how do you and your team, as you engage with these companies, how do you make sure that sustainability is now back on the agenda and stays there? Yeah, I think it, it, it's critical that we do that. And we have to be pretty systematic about the way we do it. Uh, if you look back at the way that investors used to uh, interact with companies, you would get to meet with the CEO and chairman uh, four times a year, and you would spend the bulk of the time talking about strategy, revenue, margins, cash flow, balance sheet. And in the last five minutes, you'd ask a little bit about sustainability. And we have flipped that entirely on its head. And actually, sustainability now is at the top of the agenda when we meet with our management teams. All the analysts begin their Q&A with items that, that focus on issues about sustainability, not just because we're only interested in employee welfare, for example, as you mentioned before, Richard, but because sustainability links directly to the future cash generating capabilities of these companies. So ultimately, uh, it's no longer a nice to have at the last uh, few minutes of the meeting. It's a must have because it's critical to making solid investment decisions. And so we do it in the natural course of business. You know, a skeptic might ask uh, questions about that saying, is this not just a bit of a fad that you would be starting with a sustainability uh, questions? But it sounds from what you're saying that that's not the case, that this um, is now fundamental in how you approach a company and whether or not to invest. My goddaughter in New Jersey, she's 13 years old. She's a bit of a fashionista. Uh, she likes to buy clothing. And so with her allowance, with her pocket money, and she'll do chores around the house in order to earn more money so she can buy more clothes. 
And ultimately, she, these are my words, not hers, but she will only buy clothes from companies that have a sustainable supply chain. She's very clued up on making sure that she's buying from companies that don't have a bad reputation in terms of their manufacturing process. She doesn't want her clothes made by, by a child. And so ultimately, uh, there is a direct link between the future revenue generating capabilities of that company and, and, and the trend that we're observing. And so our in investors have to reflect that in the work that they do. It's core to their fiduciary responsibility. And it sounds like you're training her hard for a, um, a career as a company analyst, perhaps, um, as, she, uh, as she grows up. But thank you for that. Okay, well, we're um, heading towards the end of this uh, recording, but it's time to play hot cakes and hot potatoes. What would you buy like a hot cake? What would you drop like a hot potato? Anna, let me come to you first. Well, we talked about um, the China story, and I think um, as, as the economists reopen that the, the China outperformance story should give way to outperformance in those countries that have been losers during the COVID pandemic. Um, and so I am quite interested in countries within emerging markets, for example, uh, that are quite um, dependent on tourism. So as borders reopen, countries like Thailand, for example, uh, Turkey are very exposed to the tourism sector. So I think uh, they would be good opportunities in the equity space in particular. And what would you drop like a hot potato? Well, the other side of this tra trade, I think, would be China. And again, it's not um, it's not a call uh, on the longer term uh, story that Ned highlighted. I absolutely agree with that. More from a tactical perspective, because China, as we, we explained um, much for their head in terms of the cycle, I think that would be the, the other side of playing uh, the beneficiaries of the reopening. Well, I suppose to be fair, Anna, you have um, plenty of times in the past highlighted China as one of your hot cakes. So um, it's now uh, sensible, I think, to maybe move it, uh, move on to something else. Ned, let me come to you for your hot cakes, first of all, please. So I'd be buying active value at the moment. And I want to be clear about this. I wouldn't be buying passive value. You know, it's clear that the market's willingness to to pay for per unit of visible growth has gone parabolic. And you've seen that with multiples being significantly stretched and that companies that we need to survive and operate that may be dull with less exciting growth stories, um, I do think at some point are going to benefit from a resurgence of interest. Um, but at the same time, we can't go out and seek passive exposure to that theme specifically because of sustainability. You don't want to buy passive value because you're going to get a lot of stuff in there you don't want to own. So so active value is my is is, is what I'd be buying. Excellent. And your hot potato, what are you dropping beyond passive value? Um, I'd be selling defensives like staples. I mean, I think Anna's characterized a, a macroeconomic environment that's improving. I think we're going to see a lot of money printing uh, taking place. And I think, you know, we call it Tina. There is no alternative. Uh, I think you've got to own I think you've got to own equities. And for me, that that sort of expensive staples, for example, just doesn't interest. Okay, thank you. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. But if you're hankering for more, you can get hours of investment analysis on our award-winning sister podcast, Fidelity Answers. Just search Fidelity Answers in your podcast app. We'll be publishing all future Rich Pickings episodes to that channel as well as here. So subscribe and you won't miss a thing. Thank you to my guests today, Ned Salter, Anna Stubnitska and George Watson, and to our analysts, Tom Robinson, Christine Miyagishima and Ben Lee. 
The full analyst survey is released today at fidelityinternational.com and will also be available at your local Fidelity website. The producer is Seb Morton-Clark with technical support from Alex Wilcox. From all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.